Till Death Do Us Part is a lighthearted and sometimes satirical true crime podcast where we present our dysfunctional married take on serious cases involving other dysfunctional relationships. We hope you enjoy. And welcome to episode 69 of Till Death Do Us Part. I am Daniel. And I'm his lovely wife, Melissa. Yes, she is. (laughs) Episode 69. I feel like you've been waiting for this episode for a year. Oh, no. I I gave up on that a long time ago. Did you, I really thought you were going to have something really special planned for episode 69. Like something witty? Yeah, because it's your favorite number. No, it's not. What's your favorite number? 96. (laughs) You know why? Oh my gosh. You know why? Why? It's the old 96-er. Yeah, from the great outdoors. John Candy, one of my favorite actors of all time, and he eats the old 96-er. That's a great movie. Oh my gosh. It's just fat and gristle left on the plate. All right, I'll stop. (laughs) It's officially what people like to refer to as spooky season, but I like to refer to October as my birthday month and Halloweener. Or Oktoberfest. Oh, there's some good beer that just came out too. See, there's a lot to do in October. There is, and we have a lot of really cool things planned in October for our Patreons. Sorry, regular listeners, but you can go over to patreon.com and find Till Death Do Us Part podcast and pay the whopping price of $6 a month to have more of us. Look, $6 is way cheaper than hiring a prostitute. (laughs) From what I've heard. I don't know. I really don't know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I can only guess. Oh, you are in great headspace tonight, honey. I'm excited to see where this is going to go. I'm not that smart, so there is a lot of space in my head. (laughs) I'm kind of dumb. All right. Daniel, got some factoids for me? All right. You insisted on something funny. I did. I said I needed something funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I started going down some like weird facts, but it's just, it's depressing. I know, you were looking up cults and stuff. Yeah, it's interesting, but it's not funny. No, that's depressing. And there's so much not funny stuff going on. Yeah, let's stay with the funny. All right, so we're going to go with funny school names. (laughs) Okay. Ready? Because people can relate. You know, kids are in school and stuff, hopefully. Yeah. Some some form or fashion. We're going to start off with tiny tits school. Now, so I'm going to preface this with this is all extremely accurate factual information I got off the internet. (laughs) So take that with a grain of salt. (laughs) Tiny tits school. Tiny tits. amazing. That's great. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Massacre preschool. What? I don't know. Like, what the hell's wrong with people? It's time to change that. No, you can't. I don't care what it stands for, what it used to be. Butts Road Primary School. <laughs> it's in Virginia. How, wait, how is butts spelled? Uh, B-U-T-T-S. Okay, so As, it's butts. Uh, butts are spelled. They actually have a primary and an intermediate school. So um, I think the person that named it must have had a really great sense of humor. I assume so. Or yeah. it's their name. 
People have the last name of Butts? Someone did, evidently. Okay. Governor Dummer Academy. (laughs) Actually fascinating. It is the oldest operating independent boarding school in the U.S. It was founded in 1763. It actually now is called Governor's Academy, but this is 100% (laughs) true. It used to be called Governor's Dumber Academy. Was it for dumb kids? No, it was someone's name. Oh, I was going to say our kids should probably go. (laughs) Yeah, but I just, you know, it's fascinating. I'm just joking. Our kids are relatively intelligent. Sure. (laughs) All right, here we go. This is a mouthful. Nothing? You didn't say anything? Uh, Well, I'm just, I'm waiting. (sighs) All right, Japanese school. West Fukusumi. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> so much we can say here. Uh, Tit Nipple High School. <laughs> is that all one word? It is West Fukusumi Tit Nipple High. Sounds like it's saying F and Sumi. Oh, exactly. That's F what F and Sumi Tit Nipple. Yeah, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking a law office would be Fukusumi uh, Law Office. That's what I would name it if I opened a law office, which clearly. It's a good thing I didn't, because it would fail. Yeah. Or actually, maybe it would do really well. It might. <laughs> called Evan Sumi. Yeah. That's funny. Epic School. That's in Alabama. Epic? E-P-I-C? Totally epic, man. <laughs> it's in Alabama. I like that. Good for I like them. that name. Right on. Um, gosh. Inuman mm. Elementary School. Wait, is it gosh in you, man? No, it's called in you, man. Oh, I just want in you, man. <laughs> okay, it is in the Philippines, so you know mm. some words are not the same. But I'm I'm a big fan of Worthington Hooker School. <laughs> this is in New Haven, Connecticut. It's actually named after former Yale professor and physician Dr. <laughs> Worthington Hooker. That's a great last name. There was a picture online of it, and it was a picture of, you know, the people put the stickers in their car because they're super proud of their kids' school and all that stuff, and it says, proud hooker mom. (laughs) Yeah, and there's that. (laughs) It's like an 80s mom. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I'm a proud hooker mom. Don't judge. Don't judge me. Uh, There's, of course, Weed High School, which is located in Weed, California, which is Northern California, almost to Oregon. Yeah, I remember that. 15 minutes from the state line. Mm -hmm. And it is Northern California. They get a lot of weed in Northern California. There is a lot of, no, there's a ton of weed in Northern California. (laughs) Like good weed, though, like the kind that help kids with seizures and stuff. Sure. No, seriously. All right. It's like the good stuff, like the medical stuff. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, Another favorite, uh, W.H. Keister (laughs) Elementary School. Yeah, Keister, you kept saying Keister in our last Betrayed episode. Keister. You kept a lot with of Keistering. The, with the rocks. A lot of, yeah. How did he get the rocks out? I don't know. He keister them. Oh, you God. guys should check that out. Here's a middle school for your kids. Uh, Pansy Kid Middle School. <laughs> Pansy. Pansy Kid Middle School is the name of the school. That's good. I like it. We can move right along to Climax Shelley <laughs> Public School. I don't I don't even know where to take that. Um, Climax Shelley? Except straight to the end, I guess. <laughs> Didn't take Shelley very long. Oh, God. <laughs> wow, that is awful, yeah, actually. In the UK, we got Cockermouth School. <laughs> that 
sounds reasonable in the UK. They got they yeah they sell yeah they do. Um, I think down the street from that is uh, Clitter House Junior <laughs> School. That's in London. <laughs> I can't make this stuff up. Wait, what is it? Clitter what? Clitter House Junior School. Isn't it an all girls school? I hope. <laughs> God. Oh, that's oh, awful. Well. What that's awful. Do? What if you're on the cheerleading team and you're like, gee, oh, uh, let me hear you say go. <laughs> Clitter house. Go. Go. <laughs> I wasn't a cheerleader. I don't know cheerleader. Names. I wasn't a cheerleader either. Um, there's gay man elementary school. <laughs> so, so I guess there's that. I don't know. <laughs> gay man. Clitter house and gay man. Oh, gosh. Mm. And then there's the Will C. Wood High School. Okay, see, now now people are just Will making C. Wood. stuff up. It's an all-boys That's someone's preparatory. name. That is a terrible name. That's a funny name. Will C. Period mm-hmm. Wood High School. That's good. Right on. <laughs> right on, right on. Nothing worse than that is the colon, junior <laughs> and senior high school. Is it spelled like colon? Absolutely it is. C-O-L-O-N. <laughs> Colon Junior slash Senior High School. I wonder what their mascot is. Just uh, a big colon. Yeah. <laughs> or like a piece of poo. Yeah. If it's not all the way, I guess it's a semicolon. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> that was good. Oh, we keep making a lot of background noise. Sorry, guys. Okay. This one is in Spanish. Espanol. For me, Spanglish. <laughs> Universidad de Moron. <laughs> University of Moron? Uh, yeah, of Moron. That's awesome. I hope our kid gets in there. <laughs> they, yeah, they'll accept anyone, evidently. Um, here's a good one. The Porny School. How's that spelled? P-O-R-N-Y. The Porny School. Ugh. Like, really? Just come up with something else. I would just... Have all sorts of names for that. And no pun intended, but at the bottom of my list, mm-hmm. right at the bottom, <laughs> Anus English Academy. Is that in That's England it? too? I don't know. <laughs> anus? Anus. Uh, is it spelled like anus? It's like Colonel Anus. <laughs> um, you remember someone got so mad at us because you messed up the spelling of anus? I did. I was. I wasn't oh even my thinking gosh. straight, and they were like, "Oh my!" They were really upset. They were, that and was it was. Funny. You know what? It wasn't us that they were upset at. They probably have like irritable bowel syndrome and have to say anus and spell it out all the time. Oh, so they probably got really annoyed by that. Yeah. <laughs> anus English Academy. That's it. That's all I got. That was so good. it wasn't cults. It's just funny words. If you attended one of those schools, can you let us know? Oh, hell yeah. Please tell us. That would be really and if incredible, there's some, if actually. There's some if, funnier ones, throw those out there. Yeah, people, let us know some crazy schools you went to. People would love that. All right. Well, thanks, Daniel. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Daniel. Yes. Are you ready for my case? Let's do it. 69 time. Here we go. <laughs> This is serious. Jeez, Daniel. Take this seriously. I do. Okay. This is the case of Mark and Florence Unger. Cool. 
On the morning of Saturday, October 25th, 2003, Linnaeus and Maggie Duncan, the owners of the Waterville Resort located on Lower Herring Lake in northern Michigan, received an early morning call from one of their guests, a Mark Unger. Mark informed them that his wife of 13 years was missing and did not appear to have slept in the cabin the previous night. Linnaeus, who went by Lynn, and Maggie dressed quickly and went looking for the 37-year-old Florence Unger around their three-and-a-half-acre property. Linnaeus is an interesting name for a guy. Yeah, and he spelt it, well, it's Linnaeus, but he went by Lynn, and he spelt Lynn, L-I-N-N. I've never heard that before. It did not take the Duncans long before Florence was found. But she was found floating face down in a shallow area of the lake, directly in front of a boathouse located a few hundred feet down from the cabin that Florence had been staying in with her husband, Mark, and their two small boys. Maggie ran back to she and Lynn's cabin and dialed the Benzie County 911, while Lynn went to find Mark. I'm going to read a little bit of that 911 call for you. Uh, Okay. The 911 dispatcher, Benzie County, Maggie. Yeah, I'm pretty upset. Okay, what is your name? Maggie Duncan. There was a death at Watervale who is an acquaintance of ours, and I believe it is a suicide or a drowning or something. Wow. I'm pretty upset is how she started a call to 911. Yes. I'm pretty upset. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But she immediately threw it out there that, She believed it was either a suicide or something. Something. It's definitely something. As police officers were dispatched to the scene, Lynn began to walk up the slope from the boathouse towards the Unger's cabin that they had rented. He met Mark about halfway. Lynn put his hand on Mark's chest and said, Mark, she's in the water. You're not going to like it. According to Lynn, Mark went ballistic and ran toward the boathouse. Mark made a beeline to Flo's body floating in the water and jumped in. Mark says he put his arms underneath Flo's body and lifted her up. Blood started coming out of her wound and he freaked. This is his words, is that he freaked. Okay. And then just dropped his wife back in the water and climbed out of the lake. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's odd. How is that odd? Well, he was willing to pick her up knowing... She's dead. Mm-hmm. But the blood was too much for him, so he just dropped her? Yeah. He just dropped her back down into the water. All right. I mean, yes, I don't know. I, I can't imagine what that would be like, but it seems odd. I mean, we never really know what we would be like in a situation until we've experienced it. No, that's but true. But that did sound a little odd to me. Yeah. A local deputy was the first on the scene and noticed right away that something was off. Every question he asked Mark would be answered with an, I don't know, and that Mark was vague when asked to write a statement about the events that took place the night before and into that morning. He also watched Mark make and answer a series of phone calls. He would be crying and moaning one minute and then click over to call waiting and sound calm and normal, depending on who he was talking to. Oh, Mark had also begun packing up the family's Ford expedition even before the deputy arrived on scene and kept telling the deputy that he just wanted to leave and get away from there. 
while his wife is still floating face down in the water, he wanted to leave. That's weird. Seems off. Would you at least stay until they pulled me out of the water? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course you would. I still would have carried you out. I I wouldn't leave you floating in the water and go, oh, nope, there's blood. I can't. Well, I don't know if you'd be able to carry me out, but you could put in a good Eagle Scout try. I'd tie you to the bumper and pull you out. I don't know. I'd I'd do something. (laughs) You would. Get You'd you make out of up there. some contraption to well, get, I mean, what if you get me out of there. Yeah, I don't want you to sink, disappear yeah, forever. Yeah. Oh, poor Florence, man. That's not good. After only two hours with Mark, the deputy was pretty certain that Mark knew more than he was saying. Oh, of course. Okay, so Daniel, I need to give you an overview of this scene because I have a feeling that this could get a bit confusing. All right, good. Are you ready to picture this? Yeah. Put your thinking cap on. Oh, gosh. All right. (laughs) The cabin the Ungers had rented was named the Mary Ellen. It was actually not part of the cabins that the Duncans owned and rented out. Maggie and Lynn owned and operated eight of the cabins on the property, including the one they lived in. Lynn had already turned off the water to their rentals and had closed them up for the season. Mark had phoned the Duncans many times over the course of the week and leaving messages asking if he could rent a cabin for the upcoming weekend. So this was kind of a last-minute trip. Gotcha. The Duncans had known the Unger family for many years. They had rented numerous cabins from them during the summer and early fall months. So this was a normal thing for the Ungers to go up to Watervale and stay in a cabin for a weekend because it was really only a little over four hours from their home. Okay. So they name their cabins? Yeah, women's names. Mm-hmm. Oh. Is there any correlation to the name? I mean, is there any reason for the name? No, I just wanted you all to know that I'd done a ton of research. So I knew, even knew the name of the cabin they okay. were seeing. All right. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> The other cabins, including the Mary Ellen, were owned and operated by Maggie's cousin. Their cousin rented the Ungers one of the last open cabins she had that had not been winterized. Gotcha. So they were shutting this place down for the winter. Right. The cabin was a couple hundred yards up from the lake. So it was kind of up a slope. Okay. Like a green grassy. Right. Sounds lovely. It is. It's actually really pretty. In Michigan. In Michigan. Till mm-hmm. the winter sets in and it's apocalyptic time. <laughs> We're not used to that kind of weather here in Central California. <laughs> We're not used to anything that resembles weather. No. Yeah, what we experience here is called a temperature change. <laughs> but a temperature change <laughs> is not usually associated with a weather event. Mm-mm. It's just I'm hot or i'm cold but there's nothing that happens along with that oh boy so come visit us sometime that'd be awesome or florida or any other place or michigan places where i go why the hell does anyone want to live there we do michigan no it's too cold not michigan no if you walk out and can die within five minutes (laughs) i don't want to live there that's it oh my goodness Built into the slope along the shore was a building called the Boathouse. The Boathouse had a rooftop deck that was at the same level as the property. You would then walk down a set of stairs to get to the Boathouse and to the sort of dock area. That sounds amazing. Are you picturing this? Yeah. Okay. Totally. 
There was an area of concrete that extends to the edge of the lake from the boathouse outside wall. It appears that the concrete area was where you would tie up your boat, like a dock, but not a motorized boat because it was too shallow. It was only six inches deep in that area. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. So you would tie up like a canoe or a paddle boat, and you would take that out to your motorized boat, which would be anchored in the deeper waters. Oh, is okay. what I'm picturing. Gotcha. Yes, the wooden rooftop deck on the boathouse was exposed to the elements all year long and showed some wear and tear. Oh, I bet. The white wooden railing around the deck was at least a foot lower than Michigan building codes. It was so low that you could sit on it. So I'm guessing that's not good. No. Because you could fall. Because you could fall. Into six inches of water. This rooftop deck was used by the resort as a sort of gathering area for the vacationers. It would usually have chairs and tables scattered about, but Lynn was in the process of winterizing the area, so those items were stored away. All but a large chaise-type lounge chair that was made out of wood and was too heavy for Lynn to carry by himself. So he had just left that on top of the deck. Sure. Yeah, why not? So are you picturing this? It's just this deck with a very low railing, and then there's one chair type thing on it. One chair. But there was a bunch at one point. And then from that level, there's steps down to the... But the steps are on the side of it. So there's a ramp, a slight ramp onto the deck, and it's just the deck. The stairs leading down to the boathouse are on the side. Okay. So that's not actually off of the deck. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Investigators were on the scene very quickly and began trying to piece together what happened to this young wife and mother. A wooden post and a section of the railing of the rooftop deck were splintered and bowed out towards the lake. Okay. A large blood stain was located on the concrete below the deck. Okay. So we logically, you'd say someone fell over... And hit the concrete. Right. Obviously. Also found on the pavement was an earring, a candle, a shattered glass candle holder, and a blue blanket. The earring was found to belong to Florence. Okay. It was the matching earring to what she was found with. But what stumped the investigators was that there wasn't a blood trail from the large blood stain to the edge of the concrete that then went into the water. Right. So how did Florence end up in the water? That's a good question. Mark told investigators that the family had arrived at the cabin in the late afternoon. They were the only guests there since it was late in the season and getting cold. The family ate dinner at a local restaurant. Mark and Florence decided to go out on the deck after they got home while the boys watched a movie in the cabin. The boys at this time were 10 and 7. Okay. So the cabin was couple hundred yards from the deck, and the boys were 10 and 7. Now, I am not one to judge parenting at all, but I get a little freaked out by leaving our kids, especially at that age, alone in a cabin. Right. In the woods. In the woods. No one else is around. Yeah. That freaks me out a little bit. I don't know. But that really has nothing to do with it. It just was a little odd to me. And I'm not even a helicopter parent, but... I don't know if I would do that. You're more of a crop duster. <laughs> that sounds worse. 
A little after 9 p.m., Florence asked Mark to go back to the cabin to check on the boys and to get them settled in bed. Mark obliged. Mark went in the cabin, got the boys ready for bed, read them a bedtime story, and they went to sleep. Mark went back out to the deck around 9.30, and Flo was not there. He assumed she was visiting a neighboring cottage, so he went back to the cabin and began watching a movie on the couch. Mark fell asleep and woke up just after daybreak. He went into the master bedroom and noticed that the bed had not been slept in and wasn't able to locate Florence. That's when he called the Duncans. But this is what I found strange. Nobody else was there. It was just the Duncans and then Maggie's cousin who rented them the cabin. But nobody else was there. So So there were only two places he could have looked for Florence that night, which was the Duncans or the cousin's house. So my question is, why would he have assumed that she would have gone to a neighboring cottage? There's no one in them. Right. Just the Duncans who were like in the next cottage over. So why would he just assume that and go, oh, I guess she's visiting an empty cottage. I'm going to go to bed. Yeah, or just no. If he, if she was sense. in with the Duncans, I would think that he would go over to the Duncans right. and hang out because they were all friends. Like right. he would golf with Lynn when he went to stay in the cabins. Yeah, they would go golfing sometimes. And wouldn't she tell him? I mean, they're only you said it's only a couple hundred yards, right. six hundred feet. Wouldn't she just kind of yell in, "Hey, I'm going to go over to the Duncans for a little bit. Don't wait up." Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. So why would he just assume that? I don't know, unless it had happened before. I mean, it kind of sounds like Sasquatch country. So what if a Sasquatch (laughs) came and took her? And serial killer country. You have to assume these things. That's true. Yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. So that was Mark's entire account for the evening of the 24th. All right. Mark said that Flo must have sat or leaned on the deck railing, causing the wood to splinter and bow. Florence then lost her balance and fell the 12 feet from the rooftop deck onto the pavement below and then somehow wound up in the water. That's also how the candle, glass candle holder, and the blanket had fallen to the concrete slab. Okay. Is that the candle was on top of the railing. It all went over. Right. It all went over with her. And that there was no way she would have fallen over that railing on purpose to end her life. She would never have left those boys, as that was what Mark was saying, too. Okay, here's another problem I have with it. Okay. Yeah, you fall 12 feet, but 12 feet is not necessarily deadly. It depends on where you hit. Yeah, but plenty of people have fallen from 12 feet and don't break anything, or you might break something, or, I mean, you could do some damage, but that's not, like, life-ending. Right. Okay. Just saying. Now, if you were to fall, say, on your feet, you would break something. Probably, if you didn't roll into it. But if you fell, you're not, it's a surprise. Okay. So you've not gotten yourself ready to fall over. Yeah. But yes, there have been people that have survived falling from a plane, let alone 12 feet. She fell head first into the concrete. Yeah, all right. It's probably... She's dead. It's going to break her neck, collapse everything. Mm. But if she just kind of fell and kind of crumpled, it's possible. Okay. I don't know. Well, let's find out. All right. But investigators were suspicious. 
How could Florence's body have moved the three feet from where the blood stain was and into the water without any help or a blood trail? She bounced. Bodies don't bounce. What, we'll get into it. What if you land on a trampoline? Then they bounce. Okay. <laughs> Florence's family were suspicious as well. They immediately believed that Flo's death was not a suicide nor an accident. They believed that she was murdered and that their son-in-law, Mark, was the murderer. Mm-hmm. Immediately, her family thought Mark did it. So they already don't trust him no. in general. No. Mark and Florence met while attending the University of Michigan. They began dating after graduation. After two years of dating, Mark asked Florence to marry him by hiding the engagement ring in her brownie sundae. Then she swallowed it and had to poop it out. I just think that's so dangerous. Right? (laughs) Hide something in food. Oh, gosh. (laughs) A brownie sundae? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That sounds delicious right now, actually. I hope it didn't have a big, like, giant, sharp diamond on it. (laughs) Florence happily accepted Mark's proposal, and the couple were married on February 24th, 1990. Mark was 29, and Florence was almost 24. And then she had to get the dental work done because she cracked a tooth biting (laughs) into the ring. Oh, jeez. Mark was a popular sports DJ for WJZZ Radio. Sure. And Florence worked in retail. Okay. The couple were happy and in love. Friends saying that being in the presence of Florence was like being in the presence of a movie star. She was, and this is me being really honest, she was breathtakingly beautiful. Wow. She had an eye for design and was caring and loving. Everything you would want in a friend. Wow. She is gorgeous. Let me show you a picture. All right. Oh, yeah, she's very attractive. Yeah, you would have gone for her for sure. Yeah. But instead, she went for DJ... What the hell's his name? Mark. Mark. Here's a picture of Mark and Florence. I'll put all of this on Instagram. He's kind of a goober. Oh, she's... Yeah, she is way more attractive than he is as far as a match. He's like a four and she's a ten. Oh, totally. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. But she was smitten by... DJ Marky Mark. <laughs> I wonder what his call sign was, you know, when he gets on there and starts spinning stuff. I like Marky Mark. That's a good name. Yeah. And Mark was crazy about her. Sure. A few years into the marriage, the couple had their first son, followed by a second son a couple years later. The Ungers had also purchased a 3,355-square-foot home in the affluent area of Detroit, Michigan, called Huntington Woods. There's an affluent area of Detroit, Michigan? (laughs) There was in the 90s. Back in the day. Okay, sorry. (laughs) No offense to those. Well, I say it. I am trying to offend people. But poor Detroit. Oh, my Uh, gosh. It is... It is really sad. But you know what? There's people that have gone in there and they're buying these homes that have been abandoned. Yeah. And they're actually turning around these neighborhoods in Detroit and they're actually doing wonderful things. So hopefully it keeps going. Yeah. It's crazy how many just block after block after block of just abandoned city there is there. Yeah. It's kind of But I mean, what do you expect? There's all this industry that just shut down yeah it was the automotive industry that was the hub yeah yeah oh goodness 
Florence loved being a mom and quit her job in retail to devote 100% of her time to her children. Cool. Being a stay-at-home mom is really hard. I did it for eight years. That was pretty difficult. (laughs) Yeah, it's the longest nine years of my life. (laughs) It really was. (laughs) Yeah. All right. But Mark's job as a sportscaster could not sustain their lifestyle, so he quit his dream job and went to work as a mortgage broker. Oh, okay. Things seemed good. The marriage was happy and solid until 1998. Eight years into the Unger marriage. Uh Uh-oh, what happened? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Mark had had back surgery for an old sports injury and became dependent on the pain medication of Norco and Vicodin. Is that a stereotype? That a back, back injury, old sports injury, and then pain medication? I, hear, I think back like I in the 90s and the 2000s or early 2000s, I think that was very much a stereotype. Okay. I think they have different ways of treating it now, which yeah. are obviously much better. But back then, they would just throw pain meds at you and basically tell you to get over it. All right. And an addiction to alcohol soon followed. Sure. And once an MGM Grand Casino was built and opened in Detroit, a gambling addiction began. Wow. So the trifecta. Yeah. Drugs, alcohol, and gambling. So you wash down the Vicodin with alcohol and head to MGM Grand. 100%. With credit card. (laughs) Mark's addictions took a toll on the family, especially on their marriage. Yeah, I would assume so. Mark became moody, angry, and hostile at home, and he hated his job. Mark hated that he was exploiting low-income customers by granting them loans he knew they could never pay back. Okay, that would be really hard. Yeah. I would have a really hard time coming home and living my life if I was continually doing that just to earn a paycheck. That's hard. So he's an pill-addicted, alcoholic gambler Mm -hmm. writing mortgage loans for low-income people. Yeah. All right, just to summarize, that's lovely. Mark also started missing important events in their kids' lives. By 2002, Mark recognized he had a problem and needed help. His father had been an alcoholic, and Mark saw himself repeating the cycle. So at least he recognized what he was doing. Yeah, I can only imagine. By September of 2002, Mark checked himself into a rehab facility and spent five months there. Ooh, that's expensive. Five months. Yeah. Unless you can get medical to cover it, but I doubt it. I think medical only covers 30 days. Yeah. And so for the next 120 days, you're paying out of pocket. Even in Detroit, rehab facilities are expensive. Yeah, but Mark came from a very wealthy family. His mom owned restaurants in Florida. So his mom had money, so I'm sure she helped out a little bit. That's my assumption. That doesn't mean it's true. This is just the background information that I got. No, but you don't have to be a mathematician to sit there and go, okay, something's not adding up. Mm -hmm. So someone was supplementing their lifestyle. Yeah. And the area that they were living in, that affluent area of Huntington Woods. Yeah. um, Mark grew up there. Mark grew up in that area. 
Mm-hmm. So he was used to the big houses and the fancy streets and all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. All right. Without Mark's income, Florence was forced to go back to work, and she got a job as a loan officer at a local bank to support the family. Okay. When Mark returned home in early 2003, he did not go back to work. He became the stay-at-home parent. Dang. Mark was collecting disability checks, which was bringing in a little bit of money for the family. So there was a little bit coming in from Mark. He got disability checks for being an alcoholic and a drug addict? He got disability checks, I believe, for his back injury. Oh, okay. And because of the surgery and stuff, and he just wasn't feeling better. Gotcha. According to friends, Florence was very open with her marital issues and had told them that she and Mark had not shared a bedroom in over two years. She was physically repulsed by Mark. Oh, lovely. Yeah, he had put on some weight because addiction does that to you. Oh. And he had put on a lot of weight. She was a runner. She was a hiker. She was super fit. And that was not the man that she married. So I take it that he um, started growing man boobs was not (laughs) attractive to her. (laughs) I would say not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. Hey, honey, check these things out. By August of 2003, 37-year-old Florence had filed for divorce from 42-year-old Mark. Poor Mark. What? He's having a tough time of it. But Mark refused to sign the papers. So things were about to get a little bit messy, especially when custody of the two boys came into play, both parents wanting full custody. So they were about to fight over these boys. Florence and her attorney demanded a full account of the money spent on Mark's rehab stay and the amount of money lost due to his gambling, which was still ongoing, by the way. Where is he getting the money for gambling? I don't know. His disability checks? His mom? I don't know. But it was still ongoing. That was the one addiction that he kept going with. Okay, so if he's an addict and he's getting a check in the mail... And he doesn't have to work and he's sitting at home. That is quite a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. Somehow, Mark was able to convince Florence to drive the four hours to the Watervale Resort, which had become a family tradition, and stay for the October weekend as a family. What? Yes. I believe he was trying to win her back and to put on a good show. Um, I believe that weekend was a weekend he thought he was going to win her back. This is in the midst of a divorce battle? And a custody battle, yes. I can't imagine anyone going with their significant other in the middle of a heated, I can't wait to be rid of you situation. Well, according to friends' testimony, Flo did not want to go and had many reservations about the trip, but she did it for the boys. But I've read and heard psychiatrists and people talk about how There's a certain amount of time when your friend is going through a divorce, especially if it's a contentious divorce or a breakup, especially with somebody who could be an abuser or a potential abuser, that that is the time that you need to check on your friend constantly. Because that is the time when people's personalities can switch on a dime and their lives could be in danger from their significant other. Sure. Or there is a window of time that your friends are in the most danger and you have to make sure that they're okay. Yeah, because- And this was that window. They're both feeling desperate. 
Yes. Especially if one doesn't want the divorce and the other one does. It makes things really, really scary. Well, it could push people to do something they wouldn't normally do. Exactly. So we're going to go into Florence's autopsy findings. Okie dokie. She had absolutely zero amounts of drug or alcohol in her system. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't drinking. She wasn't even taking Xanax or anything like that. She was perfectly clean. Okay. Florence had severe head trauma, internal injuries, a broken hip, and lake water was found in her lungs. Which means what, Daniel? So she breathed in the water. So she was alive when she went in that water. Yeah. Florence did not die from blunt force trauma. Florence died from drowning. Which means she survived the 12-foot fall, like I said. But how did her body wind up in the water? Because bodies don't bounce. No. Especially when falling from a 12-foot distance and landing on a solid surface. It's true. You don't bounce. Samples of Florence's brain were analyzed. It was found that her brain had released repair proteins after her head injury. What? The neurons in her brain were damaged. Some were dead, but some were trying to repair themselves with this protein, which means that her brain was struggling to survive after she hit her head. Florence was alive and breathing, but unconscious. That's fascinating. Isn't that? So she gets a whack on the head. Gets knocked unconscious and the brain's like, oh, damn, we got some work to do. Yeah. And and starts fixing itself. It's fixing itself. That's how amazing our brains are. That's incredible. Yes. All right. I'll learn something new every day. So the neurons in our brains control movement, memory, and emotion. She physically could not have stumbled, like gotten up and stumbled or rolled herself into that lake after she hit her head. And it's been proven that bodies do not bounce. Yeah. It's been scientifically proven that bodies do not bounce. That's a study I wouldn't volunteer for, just so you know. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. But the million-dollar question is, who put Florence in that water? Or what? Or what put her in the water? Well, I don't know. You mean like a Sasquatch? Yeah, absolutely. Mm, I knew we were going to get into Sasquatches. I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. joking. Yes, who put Florence in the water? Investigators also noticed that the blood stain on the concrete did not line up with the broken post and railing from the rooftop deck. The blood stain was a couple feet off. The trajectory did not line up. Yeah, not at 12 feet. That wouldn't be enough for her to move in the fall. Right. She would just go straight down. Yeah. But was the railing structurally sound? We know the railing was almost a foot too low, but would it have been easy for a 110-pound woman to sit on the railing and break it, plunging 12 feet to the concrete below? She was only 110 pounds. Buck 10, no way. Unless that thing was just crumbling apart. She's tiny. She's teeny tiny. Yeah. And super fit. Yeah. With like core. So even if she started to go back, I would think she'd be able to stabilize herself because she probably worked those abs. Sure. The deck was analyzed and a load cell was used to measure the compression and tension of the railing. It was determined that the railing could have withstood an over 200-pound person sitting or leaning on that rail. So I probably wouldn't fall if I had sat on that railing or leaned against it. I'd be borderlined. (laughs) I, it would start to collapse. 
It if would. I would hear some cracking if I were sitting on it and probably been like, oops, never I, mind. I would have a couple of seconds to get up before <laughs> the whole entire situation <laughs> collapsed. What we're trying to say is that we are chubby people. I am morbidly But we are obese. happy. <laughs> she rolled me in here and put a mic in front of me is what she's trying to say. <laughs> oh, okay, geez. so the railing's cool. So no way. If anything, she would have just fallen over it, but not damaged it. Right. Okay. Exactly. Right. She would have just fallen over it and Fair not enough. broken it and then fallen right. after breaking it. A pair of Mark's shoes were found in the SUV. On the toe of those boots was what looked like specks of white paint. Those bad boys were taken in for analysis. The boots had specks of white paint. Yes. Mark's boots. Okay. What color was the railing? White. I said it was a white wooden deck. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Those paint specks were a perfect match to the paint samples taken from the area that the railing was broken and bowing out towards the lake. That bastard. Mark was arrested for the murder of his wife, Florence, on May 20th, 2004, seven months after her death. Dang, it took seven months? Yes. But during that seven months, Mark did not have custody of the boys. Flo's parents did. Which is awesome. So what did he do for seven months? Probably gambled. gambled. <laughs> I don't know. The reason that Florence's parents had custody of the boys was because Mark was a suspect from day one. Ah. So they were able to fight for custody because he was being looked at as a murderer. And why are you going to keep two kids in the same home with a murderer? Correct. Yeah. So are we to assume, though, that after five months in rehab, he's clean and sober and not gambling anymore? He's just... No, he was still gambling. Puttering around the house in sweatpants and his gut hanging out? He was still gambling, but right. the drug and alcohol thing wasn't an issue anymore, okay. is what I gathered. But who knows? He could have been popping pills and drinking in the privacy of his own home for seven months. I mean, I would if I were him. I mean, think yeah. about what he's now. He has nothing. Yeah. Doesn't what else have is he going to do? Right. He's got nothing else to do. Right. He's getting those disability checks. If there was ever an excuse to start up again, that would be it. Mm. The day after Mark was arrested, he was released on a $100,000 bond. What? That his mom put up for him. What the hell's wrong with these dumb parents? You know, Ugh. as a parent, I think you just want to believe the best yes, in your children. Yes, you want to believe. You want to believe. He went to rehab for crying out loud. That doesn't make you a murderer. No, but what do they think happened to his wife? That she fell. She fell and moved and rolled herself into the water, which isn't possible? Yes, and I'll tell you why. Okay, ready? Oh, good. All right. Before I get mad. Mark had hired one of the toughest defense attorneys in Michigan. They went to work trying to prove that Florence's death was a tragic accident. The defense team hired a private forensic firm who concluded that Flo had fallen from the railing. They produced computer animated videos that showed five possible ways that Flo could have wound up in that water. So you mean his mommy hired this team? Okay, mommy hired this team. Right. But when you're hiring a private forensic firm, of course they're going to try to steer the evidence towards you being innocent. Well, because that's their only objective. Well, that's their job. Right. Why are you paying yeah. them unless they're going to find a way to prove you innocent? 
Yeah, you're not hiring them to find the truth. You're hiring them to recreate your side of the story to make it accurate. I believe so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I would do it. In April of 2006, the trial against Mark Unger began. The very first day of the trial was spent at the Watervale Resort. The jury was able to see the entire scene, including the deck and the cabin. They brought the whole jury out to the cabin? Yeah, they brought everybody out there. It was the jury, the lawyers, the judge, even Mark's mom was out there. Florence's dad was out there. Yeah. Everybody was out there walking around. Sure. I mean, that's a great field trip as a juror. I I guess. I I didn't know they go on field trips. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they go to crime scenes sometimes. Mm -hmm. Fun. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what the state believes happened. Oh, good. Mark and Florence were out on the rooftop deck. The couple got into a heated argument, possibly about the impending divorce, Mark's $7,000 loss at the local casino a couple days before. Sure. Or maybe Florence had chosen that particular moment to tell Mark about the affair she had been having for the last two years with one of Mark's good friends. Well, that would explain why she doesn't want to touch him with a 10-foot pole. Because she was getting it somewhere else. Right. Yeah. And with one of Mark's friends, like the friend that he would call his best friend. Why is it always the best friend? I don't know. So Flo had been intimate with this best friend a handful of times over that two years. The last time being a week before Florence died. Okay, so... They were intimate a handful of times over two years. That's not very much. No, because he was married too. Oh, God. But they would send each other sexy emails. Of course they would. Mm Mm-hmm. So just once in a while, get a wild hair up the butt, they would... uh, Bang it out. Mm Mm-hmm. Have an an aerobics class and... (laughs) And that's it. Okay. All right. Well, I could see where that would kind of annoy him. So Mark's best friend, the boyfriend, called the affair, quote unquote, the best kept secret in Huntington Woods. Um, yeah, I think um, I don't think I would call it a best kept secret. Yeah, nobody knew. Nobody knew but boyfriend and Florence. All right. No one else knew. Her friends didn't know. Until she told her drug-addicted, alcoholic, chubby husband. Okay, let me get into it. Okay. Okay. So then Mark snapped and pushed or kicked Florence over the railing. He then walked back up the slope to the cabin and put the boys to bed. Mark then came back to check on Flo's body an hour and a half to almost two hours later which would explain the large blood stain on the concrete being over a foot in diameter uh, because she just lied there and bled out because her heart was still pumping because she was still alive. Damn. Yes. Mark realized that Florence was still alive and breathing, so he picked her up and carried her the three feet to the side of the concrete and placed her body face first into the shallow six inches of water where she ultimately drowned. Wowzers. He then began staging the scene to look like an accident. He kicked the pole and the railing, making it splinter and bow. That's where the paint transfer happened onto Mark's shoe, is from kicking the railing. So 
how does his defense team explain why he has paint transfer on his shoe? They really don't. But I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Sure. That paint on his shoe could also have come from just walking on the deck. It looked as though the deck had not been treated in a long time. If you touch the railing, a lot of times you get paint transfer onto your hand. Sure. Just because it needs to be treated again. Yeah. So this deck was in desperate need of a treatment, and it hadn't had one yet. So I could see where the paint transfer would happen very easily, especially on shoes or like your hands or something. Yeah, and maybe in his current physical state of morbid obesity, he drug his foot, you know, kind of like caught his foot and almost tripped. Yeah. You know, and someone of his size goes down. That could be life ending. (laughs) So, you know, he he caught himself. So, yeah, I guess that's plausible. Yeah. Well, because Mark came back to check on the body and then purposely put Flo into the water and then staged the scene, that was premeditation. Yes, I would agree. That was not a crime of passion. That was not manslaughter. That was not murder, too. This was premeditated. Yeah. Family and friends testified that there was no way this could have been an accidental falling while Mark was in the cabin because there's no way that Flo would have been out on the deck or in the dark by herself. She was petrified of being alone in the dark. I'm surprised she would have gone out there with him in the dark. Somehow he talked her into it. It was an extreme and profound fear ever since she was little. And everyone who knew Florence knew about this intense fear. So there's a story that the neighbor tells that this happened a few times where Florence would forget something in her car. She would call the neighbor to come over and walk her from her front door into her car to get whatever she needed. Okay. This is how fearful she was or she would drive up to the home and the home would be dark and mark wouldn't be home yet so she would call a neighbor to come with her into her house so she could turn on lights so i'm just setting that up for you so that you know like all her family and friends were saying there is no way she would have been on that deck by herself in the dark with one measly little candle lit that wouldn't have happened i don't understand the candle I think it was to be romantic, or maybe it was to take the edge off of the dark to get her out there. That's weird. Yeah. Okay, first of all, if she has a profound fear of the dark, going out to a cabin in the woods seems to me like the last place I'd want to go if I were her. Period. Even if they loved each other. Mm. Right? Because most of... walk I mean, you've been to a cabin. You know, like you go out in the cabin, there's no lights. It's dark. It's dark. Even if you're not afraid of the dark, it's a little creepy. It is a little creepy. So it's like, hey, I'm going to go wander out in the woods real quick. No, heck no. What if there's a bear? Yeah. Or a guy dressed in a bear suit. I don't know, right? <laughs> a Sasquatch. So, yeah. And then to, for her to go out with a candle, that, that doesn't make any sense. So uh, you know yeah. what I think? What? I think he sold it to her so well. I bet he said, all right, look, clearly this isn't going to work. Why don't we go out there and I promise we'll discuss how we're going to make this divorce thing happen. And I want to tell you, I want you to have the kids, but I I really want to discuss it and kind of calm the kids down or something like that's what I would do if I were a piece of crap like him. That's right. I would do that. I would sell it to her and basically tell her that I'm giving in 
and mm. she's going to get the kids, but I just want to try and work things out. So that they could p- co-parent together. Exactly. Still be a family. And then say, look, I think it would be important for the kids. Right. If we all go to the cabin, the kids will believe that we're trying to work this out. Or not even work it out, just co-parent. Well, no, but I mean, not fight anymore. Right. And she's probably like, okay, yeah, right. that's, you really want to do that? Yes, I promise. And I then really maybe want to. they needed to discuss it out on the deck because the boys were in the cabin. Well, yeah. So maybe yeah. Mark didn't want to have this conversation in front of the yeah. boys. I think no matter what, he wanted to kill her. Mm. You do? Yeah, because you he don't... doesn't have anything else to lose. I mean, yeah, he doesn't. What's the point? Okay, well, let's finish this up okay. and then maybe you'll change your mind. All right, good. A man who works at a children's camp in the off-season testified that he had talked to Mark and Florence that night before 9 p.m. He had seen a candle flickering on the railing off the rooftop deck and was surprised anyone was there since he had seen Lynn and Maggie out at dinner in town. He introduced himself and told the Ungers that he was traveling by boat back to the camp. Florence commented that there was no way she could do that. She was too scared of the dark. Isn't that crazy? There was kind of an eyewitness to this who saw the lit candle on the railing. Isn't that crazy? This guy testified at the trial. Huh. Somebody was there. There was one person who saw the stage. He saw a single flickering candle. Yeah. All right. Wild. Wild. There were also two life insurance policies on Florence, totaling $750,000. The main beneficiary being Mark. That would change if they divorced, obviously. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So now that's worth, I think it was like $1.3 million. $1.4. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot more. A medical investigator testified that Florence died from drowning and that her body would not have bounced or rolled the three feet into the water. She couldn't have. She was unconscious once her head hit that pavement. Sure. Lynn Duncan also testified about the morning he and his wife found Flo's body in the water. He found it very strange that Mark ran to where Florence's body was without Lynn telling Mark the exact location to where she was. And from where they were standing when Mark was told, Florence's body could not be seen. You actually couldn't see her body till you were almost right on top of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he he knew where it was. He knew. He just went running straight towards where her body was. Guilty. And Lynn immediately made a mental note of that because he thought it was so strange. He was like, in this three and a half acre property... You know exactly where to run to to find her body. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, they have video proving that you could not see Florence's body until you were almost right on top of it. Okay. Off that concrete. But now it was the defense's turn. Oh, good. This ought to be interesting. They stated that the state had no case. It was all built on circumstantial evidence. There were no eyewitnesses, no confession, no fingerprints. And to them, no motive. What? There was no motive, they said. Mark loved his wife and wanted to save the marriage, not murder her. The defense believes that Florence had a seizure while leaning against the railing and fell off. Okay, she didn't have a seizure disorder. Why would she have a seizure? I don't know. (laughs) And her brain did not show any sign of a seizure. 
They're just reaching for things, I think. Mm-hmm. According to the computer animation rendering, Flo then hit the concrete, blood sprayed from her nose and head wound, and then she either bounced, rolled, or bounced and rolled into the water face down. But it wasn't blood splatter that they found. It wasn't blood spray. It was an actual puddle of blood. Right. That was over a foot in diameter. An accumulation of blood. Yes, exactly. Not an explosion of blood. Right. It looks totally different. In my non-professional opinion, that would look totally different. What the hell are they talking about? And didn't they just hear that it's not possible for a body to bounce? You already told me that. You stopped me dead. (laughs) Because I've heard from a few other cases where the medical examiner is saying that bodies don't bounce when they hit a hard surface. So the prosecution brings in all these experts that says bodies can't bounce. And then the defense steps up and goes, yeah, so, um, yeah, she fell, had a seizure, fell, bounced, rolled, sprayed which none of those things happened. Right. Okay. I know. Good. All right. Yep. Well, they got to go with something. I mean, they do. They paid, got paid That's enough. That's their job is to prove him innocent. Mark's mommy paid him enough. I mean, they got to do <laughs> oh, something gosh. up there. Okay. So they're saying her death was an accident and that the night went down exactly how Mark had said. Sure. She fell. The defense also pointed out that Mark did not know about the affair until months after her death. The medical examiner that the defense brought up to the stand was actually the medical examiner examiner who autopsied Florence. He testified that she died from the severe head wound, but could not rule out the possibility of her drowning. But why would there be any water in her lungs if she didn't drown? Right. I mean, do you, if you're lying face down in the water and you're dead, do you somehow get water in your mouth that travels down into your lungs? I think it would travel down into your stomach. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm not a smart person. I am not any sort of medical personnel or <laughs> medical examiner. But the logical side of me is saying that doesn't make any sense. No, I concur. <laughs> Mark's defense team disputed the claim that Mark knew where Florence's body was located before Lynn had walked up the slope to tell him. Lynn was walking up from that area. Of course, Mark would go to the general direction from which Lynn was walking up to him from. Man, these defense attorneys are good. I mean, I kind of get that. I mean, that makes a little bit of sense. Like, he sees Lynn coming from the boathouse, walking up the slope towards him. I would go immediately to the direction that Lynn was coming from. So I kind of get that. But he had to go down to the boathouse and then make a right and then see her body. But you re- you could not see her body unless you were almost standing right over it. Right. So that, yeah, this didn't make any sense. After nine weeks of trial and over 200 witnesses, both sides gave their closing arguments each lasting over three hours. Oh, God. The jury of six men and six women deliberated for over 26 hours. What? On June 21st, 2006, the jury found 45-year-old Mark Unger guilty of first-degree murder of his wife, Florence Unger. He was automatically given a life sentence. So what do you think they deliberated about for 26 hours. So what I read in kind of a forum is that they were deliberating over it 
over whether or not it was first-degree murder or second-degree murder. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. So that's what they were trying to decide. They all knew he was guilty immediately. It was, which one was he going to get? Because okay. it definitely wasn't a crime of passion. But going back down to check on her body instead of calling 911, waiting almost two hours, and then going down to check on her body, realizing she's still alive, and then getting her in that water, that's purposely killing somebody. Sure. That is not an accident. Yeah. That's deliberately ending somebody's life. That's first-degree murder. Well, his defense threw everything they could at it, clearly. They tried. They tried their hardest. And he had an amazing defense attorney who, out of 100 murder cases, has only lost two. And this is one of them. And this is one of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the defense knows he's guilty. They just have to look for anything that the prosecution might have slipped up on. I mean, they're never going to admit that they think that he's guilty. Well, no, but that's not their job. Their job is to find cracks. Expose the cracks in the case. Yeah. Yeah. Mark has lost his most recent appeal in 2019 on the basis of ineffective counsel. They always go for that, don't they? He resides in the Chippewa Correctional Facility in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. What's up, UP? Nice. Mark is 62 years old today. And he is now a girlfriend. <laughs> what would Sorry. what would Mark's prison name be? Oh, I think if he just went by Marky Mark, I yeah. think he'd be most enjoyed. <laughs> or just Marky. Marky. Hi, Marky. I hope you have to go by Marky. Fun fact number one. Oh, good. I got two fun facts for you. So number one, this case actually made forensic history. This was the first time that immunohistochemistry was used as evidence in a criminal case. Really? Which means that a laboratory has a method that used antibodies to check for certain antigens, proteins, or markers in sample tissue. And it was used as evidence. Huh. Isn't that cool? Fun fact number two, the boys were raised by Florence's parents. And in 2006, Florence's sons won a $10 million lawsuit against Mark. This was for Florence's projected lifetime earnings as a bank loan officer and the personal loss to her survivors. The boys are now adults and are doing very well. Okay, so my question is, why $10 million unless they think they're going to get it? Who's going to pay the $10 million because he's in prison for life? I don't know. And what I read about that was that it's never known if the children were actually paid this amount of money. But I think it proved to everybody that the kids believed that he had killed their mother. It's more of symbolism. Yes. Because, yeah, they want to show that, yeah. hey. And that they want nothing to do with their dad. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, they won't. I mean, his life in prison. Yeah. So, Daniel, what do you think of my case? That was fascinating. That was a good one, right? Yeah. I mean, poor Florence and her family and her friends. I mean, the, she was just loved by everybody and she tried so hard to be a good wife and a good mom and provide for her family and she was just done with mark and she had every reason to be done with him and if he did do this shame on you mark really shame on you so her family had doubts right from the beginning immediately from the beginning yeah Mm -hmm. 
which is why they were so upset. Yes. So imagine that in the back of your mind going, I knew it. Right. I knew he had the potential to hurt my daughter. Do you Mm -hmm. think it's because they look at their daughter as this gorgeous, super amazing person? She was the super amazing person. Yeah, like he's just not a good match. I don't know. I think they just wanted their daughter to be happy, so they were going to support her in her choices. But they didn't. She didn't choose wisely. Yeah, that's my. But then they didn't support her because they didn't support her. She made a choice, and right from the beginning, they always had their doubts, and then he lived up to those doubts. But people make wrong choices all the time, and their parents still support them and love them and help them get out of these situations. That's true. Which is what her parents were trying to do. And like her dad even said, that there's a time that you need to check on your friends if they're going through a divorce like this. You constantly have to be checking in on them, offering them a place to stay, a place to be safe. You have to take that responsibility for your friend or family. Especially if they're afraid of the dark. Especially if they're afraid of the dark. If you hear that they're going out somewhere in the dark and you know they're afraid of it, try and talk them out of it. Yeah. With the spouse that is going through a contentious divorce. Yeah. Yeah. Don't go in the dark. The obese pill, alcohol addicted, soon to be ex-husband. He is a four, married to a 10. Yeah. My information on this case came from lots and lots of articles. I found Mark's appeal records, which are always really fun to go through. I read the first half and skimmed the second half of a book titled Afraid of the Dark by Tom Henderson. And there's a Dateline and other forensic shows about this case. Well, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our crazy banter. It's always crazy. As always, please go check out our Patreon got a few things coming out new for our patreon <laughs> it should be really fun should especially be... for uh halloween or season yes we are also on social media we are only on instagram so it's till death do us part podcast we'd love to hear from you if you guys would like to contact us for some reason or another you can always reach us email till death do us part at att.net and be careful for marriage is a life sentence. And divorce is always the better option. Yep. Bye. Later.